The year was 1753. Five years had passed since Muhammad Shah, the last of the Mughal emperors to hold any real power, had died, they said, of despair. Sitting at his writing desk in Panipat, just north of Delhi, Inayat Khan Rasikh had just finished putting the final touches to his latest literary work. It was, he thought, something entirely new in Hindustan. Given the rave reception of the first ever biographies of Urdu poets that had just stormed through the Delhi salons, he thought it would prove popular. He hoped it would, as he had a much younger wife to impress, and more importantly, to keep. For times were uncertain, especially in Mughal Delhi. The urbane residents of this cosmopolitan capital had shrugged off the 1739 invasion of the Persian Emperor Nadir Shah, his attempted massacre of Delhi's population notwithstanding. The 1730s and 40s burst with new cultural life, with waves of innovation in Urdu poetry, musical composition and painting enrapturing audiences on a daily basis in Delhi's select salons. This was the golden age of Mir and Soda, of Sadarang and Adarang, of Nurbai, of Kalyandas. But Nadir Shah's brief incursion had exposed for all to see the threadbare nature of the Mughal emperor's new clothes. By the 1730s, the resurgent Marathas had already diverted the rivers of revenue from central India that had once poured into Mughal coffers. Nadir Shah may have torn away the best of the Mughal treasures, but it was his stripping of Muhammad Shah's dignity that triggered the Mughal's own provincial viceroys in Hyderabad, Awad and Bengal, likewise to look to their own interests. From 1739, they no longer remitted taxes back to the centre. The denizens of Delhi kept calm and largely carried on, at least until Muhammad Shah's death. But it wasn't long before the effects of this disappearing revenue made themselves felt keenly in the pockets, indeed the very bones of Delhi's cultivated elites. Inayat Khan Rasikh was born in India in 1701 and came from a wealthy Iranian family with a tradition of loyal service to the Mughal throne. He, his father and his five brothers were all trusted and intimate favourites throughout Muhammad Shah's reign and Mughal favour continued after 1748 under the young emperor Ahmad Shah who reigned until 1754. But favours come at a price and Ahmad Shah soon began calling them in to prop up his cratering finances. Inayat's brother, Shakir, wrote, Under the pressure of threats and vain promises from the emperor, all of us brothers gathered together whatever remained to us, sold most of our properties in Delhi, Panipat and Patna, called in promissory bills, borrowed what we could, and altogether gathered a total sum of 130,000 rupees, which we paid into the royal treasury. They never got it back, and it would only get worse. 1752 and 3 were bad enough, with a weak Ahmad Shah fully under the control of his mother and the chief eunuch, dismissing his capable vizier and replacing him with the violent, duplicitous Imad al-Mulk. It was fortunate that Inayat did not have a crystal ball, or he would have seen, just one year later, Imad al-Mulk blind and imprison Ahmad Shah, get into bed with the Marathas, and in 1759 murder the elderly puppet Alamgir II he'd set up in Ahmad Shah's place, 
all the while laying Delhi wide open to the predations of the marauding Afghan warlord Abdali. These years saw Inayat and his brothers personally rescue Ahmad Shah's women and children as he abandoned them trying to flee and cower within earshot as future Emperor Shah Alam II fought his way out of Delhi in 1759 as Imad al-Mulk hunted him down. And then, in 1761, they watched helplessly as the Marathas commandeered and camped all over their beautiful orchards, fields and gardens before the Battle of Panipat. They lost everything but the clothes they stood up in as Abdali's victorious army swarmed through their lands like locusts. Yet, in 1753, Inayat Khan Rasik sat down amidst the shady orchards and fruitful gardens of his family estate and put the finishing touches to his latest literary work, the Risali Zikri Mughaniani Hindustani Behisht Nasheen, the first ever Tazkira, or biographical dictionary, of the lives of the late blessed musicians of Hindustan. Why did Inayat choose to write, in this moment in political history, something genuinely new to Hindustani musical culture, the first ever standalone biographical dictionary of past Hindustani musicians? It's noteworthy that the musicians he commemorated had all passed away before the end of Muhammad Shah's reign. Inayat's assembly of musicians are those who flourished during the golden age of the great Mughal emperors Akbar, Jahangir, Shah Jahan and Aurangzeb. His dictionary of musicians is thus a monument to what he, a member of a younger generation who couldn't remember it, considered the golden age of the Mughal empire and of Hindustani music. The answer to why he wrote this work at this moment, I think, lies in the subject of Inayat's longest entry. It's not, as one might expect, the life story of a legendarily famous musical figure like Amir Khusrow or Tansen. Rather, the story deposits us at a crucial juncture in the mid-17th century, the bloody battle for the Mughal crown in 1657 between the brothers Dara Shuko and Aurangzeb. It tells a single story from the life of Hushal Khan Gunasamudra, the Ocean of Virtue, who died sometime after 1672. He is now almost completely forgotten, but at the time he could not have been more important. He was chief musician of the Mughal imperial atelier under the emperors Shah Jahan and Aurangzeb. This exceptionally revealing story concerns the entanglement of music with political and supernatural power. You can find images and timelines to help you follow the story on the website associated with this podcast. The 1657-8 War of Succession is regarded as a major turning point in Mughal history. The Mughal throne did not automatically pass to the eldest son. This led to fratricidal wars of succession, but also during an emperor's lifetime, constant tension between royal princes and outright rebellions against the emperor. Every single emperor from Akbar onwards faced armed rebellion from one or other of his sons. But only one of them was successful, Aurangzeb, who usurped his father Shah Jahan in 1657. 
1658. Shah Jahan, builder of the Taj Mahal and the magnificent fort and walled city of Old Delhi, had four sons. The most powerful of these were the eldest, Darashuko, and the third, Aurangzeb. They were like night and day. Dara was intellectually curious, artistic and religiously liberal. He had the Hindu scriptures the Upanishads translated into Persian. Aurangzeb was efficient, just, strategic and pious. He stitched his own prayer caps and copied out the Qur'an. Unfortunately, Shah Jahan played favourites. While he kept Aurangzeb as far away as possible, fighting wars for him in the southernmost Mughal provinces of the Deccan, the emperor kept Dara at court in luxury and favoured him as his successor. This was not good for Dara. The lack of a predetermined succession meant that the Mughal princes had to cultivate friendships and alliances outside the royal household. The building of powerful courtly and military factions was crucial to taking the throne. Dara didn't think he needed a faction because he had his father's blessing. The disfavoured and disliked Aurangzeb was practised at building up and sustaining alliances. Dara didn't bother much with military matters. Aurangzeb publicly proved himself able at the manly skills of both sword and pen. As a result, when the inevitable war of succession broke out, Aurangzeb was far better placed to succeed than Dara. When Shah Jahan fell ill in 1657, Dara seized the opportunity to take over the reins of imperial administration. His three brothers rose up to oppose what they saw as a power grab, and a year-long war of succession ensued. In 1658, Aurangzeb emerged victorious, executed his brothers. To be fair, they would have done the same to him. Imprisoned his father in Agra Fort until his death in 1666, and was crowned the Emperor Alamgir, the world Caesar. And thus, so historians have often told us, were the first seeds of Mughal decline sown. between Dara and Aurangzeb has traditionally been seen as a struggle for the soul of the Mughal Empire, between a liberal vision of universal tolerance and a narrow vision of it as an Islamic military enterprise that doomed it to failure. Aurangzeb's genuine piety led him to try to rule his extremely diverse and majority Hindu empire along more strictly Islamic lines from 1668. The story that encapsulates better than any other the distress of those opposed to this narrower regime is the so-called burial of music. One of the many things Aurangzeb stopped doing in 1668 was listening to music. In legend, his court musicians staged a public protest in response in the form of a funeral procession, carrying coffins through the streets to the foot of Aurangzeb's palace, shouting, Music is dead! To which... He famously responded, then bury her so deep under the earth that no sound of her voice will ever be heard again.
It was Hushal Khan Gunasimudra, Aurangzeb's chief musician in 1668, who received the emperor's order that he and the other court musicians might still come to court, but must not make music. And if such a procession did happen, it would have been Hushal who led it. But this is not the story Inayat chose to tell. Hushal Khan was head of the Mughal imperial atelier during the last part of Shah Jahan's and the first part of Aurangzeb's reigns. Hushal was a kalawant, the term for elite court musicians who specialised in singing drupad songs and playing the stringed instruments bean and rabab. Kalawant simply means artist, but by the mid-17th century, the Kalawants of Delhi were organised as professional guilds built on interrelated blood lineages of hereditary musicians. The most prestigious lineage were the direct descendants of Akbar's chief musician, Pansen, the greatest Hindustani musician that ever lived. Khushal was Tansen's great-grandson and inherited the position of chief musician that had belonged to his forefathers. Khushal's illustrious father, Lal Khan, had been renowned for his absolute mastery of Tansen's song compositions and musical style and was esteemed even by his rivals as unequalled. When Shah Jahan confirmed Lal as chief musician, he gave him a new Sanskrit title, Gunasamudra, the Ocean of Virtue. Lal had four sons, Hushal and his three brothers, and they all learned the traditions of Tansen's lineage at their father's knee. From an early age, the boys sang at the court of Shah Jahan with their father and other leading musicians of the era. Hushal and his brother Bisram would stand one on each side of their father on the carpet beneath Shah Jahan's throne and play the drone tambura to support Lal while he sang the lengthy unaccompanied introduction called the Alap. Then Hushal and Bisram would join him to sing the Drupad composition, their youthful voices increasing the strength and power of their fathers. But as Lal grew old and gave over to his sons the honour of singing the Alab, it became clear that of all his brothers, it was Hushal who was the true singer. And it was to Hushal that his father entrusted the full secrets of Tansen's style, repertoire and esoteric law. By the time he reached maturity, Hushal had become the skilful master of his age, especially noted for his rendition of Tansen's songs. But Hushal also embraced theoretical learning and the art of composing songs, even training famous music theorists in the practical art of music making. Hushal's own compositions were considered remarkable for their comprehensive mastery of the tradition and became renowned in later centuries for their technical precision, subtlety of ideas and correctness of style. He wrote songs in praise of his illustrious majesty that delighted the emperor's heart so much that yearly he was weighed against rupees and showered with them publicly in the audience hall. 
When Lal died in 1654, it was only natural that Hushal should become chief musician, and Shah Jahan duly bestowed upon him his father's title, Gunasamudra, and gave him the hereditary place of Tansen in the royal audience hall. But although in talent he was a match for his ancestors, in virtue, Hushal was not his father's equal. He was a great musician, but he had fallen more than a little in love with the adulation of the court and with the riches his talents commanded. And according to Inayat Khan, he gave in to the temptation to intrigue in dangerous political waters. Here begins Inayat's story. The images on the website will help you follow this rather intricate tale. Sometime between 1654 and 57, Shah Jahan's commander-in-chief, Ali Mardan Khan, was at court. Ali Mardan was an Iranian nobleman who was the Safavid emperor's commander at Kandahar when Shah Jahan besieged it in 1638. Ali Mardan made the fateful decision to go over to the Mughals, ensuring their victory. In return, Shah Jahan gave him the highest rank, command of the army, and the trust and friendship of his new sovereign. On this particular occasion, the emperor asked his friend an awkward question. In your opinion, which one of the royal princes will become emperor after me? Now, the commander was a canny operator. He knew that Shah Jahan favoured his elder son, Dada Shakoh, as the next emperor, but that speaking out against his favourite would violate the rules of etiquette and his duty. So instead, the commander prophesied, he who is closest to Murshid Kuli Khan, son of Ahwal Khan, will be successful. Murshid Kuli had come to India with the commander as one of his most trusted subordinates and had made a name for himself as a talented revenue officer. The emperor placed complete faith in the commander's judgment. So he placed this superior revenue officer in Dara's entourage and instructed the prince to befriend him. But Dara was immature and pampered, and far from respecting his father's advice, he gave excessively burdensome orders to the revenue officer and treated him with disdain. Very soon, the revenue officer began to avoid Dara, seeking out instead the companionship of the commander-in-chief. Meanwhile, Shah Jahan's younger son, Aurangzeb, who was governor of the Deccan far to the south, came home to visit the commander-in-chief. Unlike Dara who behaved towards the men of his father's circle with arrogance and suspicion, Aurangzeb made a point of cultivating respectful friendships with the emperor's chief confidants, and the commander was already inclined to his cause. Impressed by the revenue officer's renowned talents, but knowing nothing about the prophecy, Aurangzeb decided he wanted the revenue officer transferred to his command in the Deccan. Aurangzeb knew that because of his poor relationship with his father, Shah Jahan would not transfer the revenue officer if he asked himself. So he asked the commander to do it for him. Aurangzeb's request put the commander in a keen dilemma. If he agreed to it, which common sense suggested would be the best move, he would be seen to be manipulating his own prophecy and thus defying the emperor. He accepted the task, but reluctantly, and try as he might, he couldn't quite seem to light upon the right moment to present the petition at court. 
As is the way with scandalous news, rumours of this unfulfilled request began to circulate around the drinking parties of Delhi and eventually came to the ears of the chief musician. Khushal instantly perceived an opportunity to enrich himself. He went straight to the commander and said, Sir, if you give me a 100,000 rupees, I can easily arrange the formal transfer of the revenue officer. All you need to do is go to court and present your petition to the emperor when I give the signal. With relief, the commander passed responsibility into the musician's capable hands. At court, it was customary that Tansen's successors would sing standing where Tansen had once stood, at a distance of ten forearms length from each other, on a corner of the carpet beneath the throne. On the appointed day, just before Persian New Year, Noruz, Khushal and Bisram took their hereditary places and prepared to sing. The chief musician cast one swift glance for luck at the single human figure inlaid high in the wall above Shah Jahan's head, Orpheus enchanting the animals with his music, and embarked on a slow alap in the melodic mode Ragni Tori. As he sang through the gentle mood of love and adoration, Tori gradually took on her personified shape until she stood before the assembly, a delicate white woman wearing a white sari with camphor flowers and saffron on her body, standing in a forest alone, playing her instrument and pacifying the gazelles by her feet, listening with exquisite joy to her music, finally succumbing to ecstatic insensibility. The emperor's attention was rapt by the extreme loveliness of this music. By the time Khushal finished, the effect on Shah Jahan was total. The whole universe seemed to slow down around him as he listened intently with the ear of his heart. Feeling its effects, all around him, the great nobleman present also became silent and still. Now was Khushal's moment. Imperceptibly, he gave the signal to the commander that he should present the petition for transfer to the emperor. Shah Jahan was still under the power of Khushal's spell and was in no fit state to read anything and stamped the petition without looking at it. The next day, the revenue officer Murshid Kuli Khan duly presented himself before the emperor to be released from Dara's service. Until this moment, Shah Jahan was oblivious to what had happened the previous day. Taken aback, he whispered to the commander, I do not recall giving permission for Murshid Kuli's release. The commander directed his attention to the petition and the place where he had stamped it. Horrified, the emperor realised he had stamped it without reading it but also that he could not take back his decision without admitting he had been so entranced by Khushal's melody that his attention had drifted. So in order to save face, and in full knowledge of the fateful consequences, the emperor authorised the release of the revenue officer into Aurangzeb's service.
In the Deccan, Mashid Kuli became Aurangzeb's constant companion, and Aurangzeb treated him with respect and kindness until, during the War of Succession, he was killed, securing Aurangzeb's victory over Dara at the Battle of Dharmat in April 1658. Thus, did the commander-in-chief Ali Maran Khan's prophecy come true. But what of Hushal and his reward for securing Aurangzeb's crown purely through the power of music? When Shah Jahan realised the chief musician's role in cheating his favourite son of his future, he removed Hushal and Bisram from their positions as chief Kalawans, banning them from ever again singing in the place of Tansain at the foot of his throne. But Aurangzeb, A great connoisseur of Hindustani music took no time in restoring them to their hereditary place in 1658 and showering special attention on Khushal for the next 10 years. When Aurangzeb turned 50 in 1668, officially becoming an old man, he resolutely turned his face against the pleasures and diversions of his youth and instructed Khushal and Bisram to continue attending him at court but no longer to sing in his presence. Yet, for many years after this, he continued to bestow considerable largesse and honours on Khushal and the other Kalawans, including honouring Khushal when Bisram died in 1672. Here ends the story of Khushal Khan Gunasamuja. The moral Inayat Khan Rasikh drew from this story was firmly aimed at people who got too big for their slippers. Only he who does not put his foot outside the carpet will earn the royal mandate of high distinction. To me, the story says more about the folly of Shah Jahan. If it were my moral to give, it would be don't sign anything without reading the fine print. But the story's underlying message concerns Inayat's unshakable belief in the perceived powers of Hindustani music to alter the fundamentals of the universe for good or for ill. Music could make or break kings. And in the Mughal imagination, the supernatural power of music underpinned sovereign power. Where did this belief come from? To understand, we need to turn to the canonical treatises on Hindustani music written during Khushal Khan's lifetime until the end of Aurangzeb's reign. Of all the arts and sciences cultivated in Mughal India outside poetry, it is music that is by far the best documented. Hundreds of substantial works on music from the Mughal period still exist in Sanskrit, Persian and Hindi, classical Hindi. But especially key to unpacking the story of Hushal's deployment of Ragni Tori to enchant Shah Jahan is a wave of treatises on Hindustani music written in Persian during the reign of Aurangzeb, designed to satisfy the needs of high-ranking connoisseurs of Hindustani music who were more comfortable in the official language of the Mughal Empire. These key treatises became the canonical core of Mughal music theory for the next 200 years, You can find information about the major core treatises on the website associated with this podcast. These treatises range over exceptionally wide musical terrain in significant depth. But if they have one overpowering and unifying theme, it is their obsession with the nature of the rags, the melodic frameworks of North Indian music. Each 
Each rag was believed to possess specific supernatural powers and had a second life as a personified being given form and substance in poetical imagery and paintings. Understanding the true basis of each rag's tremendous power was vital to control and harness music for the well-being of individual Mughal men and the empire as a whole. Treatise authors were obsessed with the relationship between the sonic properties of the rag as a framework for composing melodies and its powers to awaken specific emotional states in the listener or to transform the natural world, but only if sung at exactly the right time. As one author wrote, When I engaged my friends in informal conversation and they introduced the topic of rag, I found myself utterly in the dark as to why the people of Hind have specified a time for every rag at which its performance is most pleasing. For example, the fact that rag perev should be sung in the morning. I have written this guide to explain why the rags must be sung at their specified times. The Mughal theorists were determined to establish each rag's potent effect on the listener when harnessed correctly. That is to say, wrote Zamir, why it is that the gentle singing of the beautiful voice causes dusk to fall, or vengeful snakes to be tamed by melancholy harmonies, or deer to faint dead away from listening to heart-stealing melodies. So what was the source of the rag's magical powers? How did Ragani Tori gently lead the listening beasts of the forest into a peaceful, ecstatic reverie, just as Orpheus pacified the guard dogs of Hades, and Hushal hypnotised the emperor into acting against his will. Why did the timing need to be exact? And what was the connection between musical power and the emperor's sovereign power? Why was there a picture of Orpheus above the Mughal throne? It is in the two treatises written by Hushal Khan's disciples, the gentleman theorist Zamir, and Hushal's professional successor, his own son, Rasbaras, that we find the clearest answer. The Mughal understanding of the source of the rag's power was rooted in ancient Greek ideas about how music affected the listening body filtered through Arabic and Persian writings, in ideas about the mind, with its struggle between reason and the emotions anger and desire, about the body, with its four humours derived from the four elements earth, air, wind and fire, and about astrology, and these last two were strongly paralleled in Sanskrit sciences too. The Mughals used mathematical proportions discovered by Pythagoras to tune their instruments, tying the powers of the rag to the ancient Greek theory of the music of the spheres. This theory states that the same mathematical proportions audible as musical harmony, seven principal notes of the scale, 12 positions for those notes in the octave, underpinned the inaudible but equally harmonious movement of the seven celestial bodies through the twelve houses of the zodiac. In this way, music's powers over the listening body were tethered to astral power. More importantly, because musical acoustics are based in pure mathematical ratios, Mughal theories of kingship presented music as a scientific proof of justice produced when reason holds the emotional powers of anger, desire and contemplation in perfect balance. A man could thus harness music to control his own self, or, if he happened to be a ruler, the entire body of the kingdom. 
Each of the seven celestial bodies, the Sun, the Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Saturn and Jupiter, dictated which element ruled each of the seven notes of the Indian scale. The two main notes in each rag determined whether it was dominated by fire, water, air or earth. This gave each rag a unique emotional temperament that determined the effect it would have on the listener's emotions, the health of the kingdom or the state of the natural world. Listening to a fiery rag like Deepak inflamed the heart with passionate love. Whereas listening to a watery rag, such as Khushal Khan's Ragni Tori, increased such bliss in the heart that the listener would be annihilated in ecstatic union with divine truth. When choosing rags to be performed in the court then, patrons and musicians needed to be sensitive to the time and atmosphere of the occasion and the temperament of their audience, deploying rags that would bring their humours back into balance. It also explained why rags had to be played at particular times. Rags with dominant cold notes should be played at midday in order to balance out the heat of the day with the cool element, while watery rags, like Meg, should be sung in the hot, dry months in order to precipitate the monsoon rain. But the most telling connection is the one Rasparas and Zamir drew between music and the political order, between the seven musical notes and the social hierarchy of their day. It is strikingly virtually identical to the one Emperor Akbar made between the different people of his empire and their temperaments. The rulers and nobility were fiery, the scholars and philosophers watery, the scribes and bureaucrats airy, and servants earthy. In other words, the theory of harmony and balance dictating successful musical performance was identical to the theory underpinning Mughal notions of the balanced kingdom. What is more, Emperor Shah Jahan viewed Orpheus and his musical powers as supernaturally connected to his own divine powers to bring all the fractious factions of the empire together in harmony and balance. This was no metaphor. Music was an essential player in maintaining the whole structure of empire and proper governance. This is why musicians featured so prominently in historical accounts, together with astrologers, on state occasions such as coronations and royal births. Music's powers, rationally controlled, were absolutely necessary to Mughal sovereignty. Music made kings, but it could also break them. Inayat Khan make of all this, looking back upon it from the much more politically troubled perspective of the 1750s. Widespread belief that the Rags had decisive, even occult power over human affairs continued in North India long after the death in exile of the last Mughal emperor, well into the era of the British Raj. As one Indian writer put it in 1869, a singer was like a necromancer and the rag was like a spirit he conjured up. 
When a conjurer utters his prescribed prayers and preparations and invokes a spirit, we call his formula effective, powerful. Similarly, if anyone sings a particular rag in its prescribed way, and that rag produces its assigned effect, we call that rag effective. In the 1750s, subjects of the erstwhile Mughal territories across Hindustan still genuinely believed in the power of the rags performed at exactly the right time to strengthen or subvert the natural and political orders. In his history of the reign of Muhammad Shah, Inayat's brother retold their father's eyewitness account of a neighbour in Panipat who deployed music supernaturally to bring on the monsoon rains. In a period of severe drought, Muhammad Shah's favourite, Roshan Udola, a major nobleman, Sufi and music aficionado, promised the emperor that if he gave a hundred thousand rupees to a particular Sufi saint, the rains would come. Roshan Udola gathered together the hereditary Sufi musicians, the Kavals, at his house in Panipat to sing the clouds into bursting and presided over a musical assembly in which he and Inayat Khan's father went deep into ecstasy. When my father left and rode on towards my uncle's house, clouds appeared and rain started falling. Still uplifted by the spiritual music, Roshan Udola mounted his horse and went to greet the emperor and collect his wager a memorable miracle inscribed in the annals of the time. Inayat Khan's groundbreaking musical text, The Lives of the Late Blessed Musicians of Hindustan, could never reproduce the potent, world-changing essence of music itself. So why then did he write about music in the form of a biographical dictionary? In doing so, in memorialising the master musicians of a period in the near past in which Mughal power was still real, in underlining within it his unshakable belief in music's ongoing power to change things, I think he was trying to hold the broken world together with little more than the sibilant scratches of a broken pen. Listen more closely to Inayat's longest story. Khushal knew exactly what state his singing of Ragni Tori would put Shah Jahan in. He overstepped the simple but profoundly important boundaries of his mandated position to maintain the empire's stability through the power of his song by abusing his knowledge and his considerable powers to subvert the political destiny of the Mughal dynasty. More than that, he usurped the powers of Orpheus and turned them against the Orpheus sitting upon the throne. I think Inayat Khan's story held a prophetic warning, not for musicians, but for the young emperor Ahmad Shah and for the powerful plotters seeking to control him, his mother, the ex-professional musician Udhambai, and the chief eunuch Javed Khan, who together ran the empire, but also their hastily regretted choice for new prime minister, Ghaziuddin Feroz Jang III Imadul Mulk. Just one year after Inayat Khan put down his pen, Ahmad Shah became the first emperor since Shah Jahan to be dethroned and imprisoned alive by a power-hungry usurper stepping way outside the borders of his ordained place on the carpet for his own political gain. 
as prophesied. In the end, it was Imadul Mulk who reaped the whirlwind when Abdali came and swept him away. This podcast is part of the project Histories of the Ephemeral, Writing on Music in Late Mughal India, sponsored by the British Academy in association with the British Library. For more episodes and information, email katherine.schofield at kcl.ac.uk. The Orpheus of Delhi was written by me, Catherine Butler-Schofield, and is based on my original research. The producer was Chris Elkham. Recordings of Rag Bilaskhani Todi, the main form of Rag Todi in the time of Khushal Khan, are courtesy of Rakhay Jamil on Sobaha, MVN Murti on Veena, Pamulka Karuna Nayake on Esraj, Lota Berger, Sumyojit Das and Surendra Malik, overtone singing and vocals, and in a performance of a composition by Bilas Khan, Khushal Khan's grandfather, Professor Ritvik Sanyal, recorded by Hans Wettstein. With thanks to the British Academy, the European Research Council, the British Library, Yale University Art Gallery, Eber Koch, Munis Faruqi, William Dalrymple and Bruce Wannell. Oh.